one has to move to something, not away from something. Okay, welcome back to the Marketing Playbook presented by Details Interactive. Here you'll take away three game-winning marketing plays every episode to take back to your team. I'm your host, Mark Friedman, and my career has been focused on direct-to-consumer marketing, direct mail, physical retail, and digital commerce. This is episode number 45, and today's guest is Kathy Halligan, who's currently a strategic advisor and a board member for a number of well-established public companies. Before we get started, a quick thank you, as always, to Max Brandstetter of the Wild Business Growth Podcast for producing this episode. You can reach him at max at maxpodcasting.com to help bring your podcast to life. Let's open the playbook. Ready, break. Well, hello, everyone. Thank you for joining the Marketing Playbook Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Kathy Halligan. Kathy is an independent board director with publicly held companies and private PE-backed companies helping board members and business executives understand and apply consumer-facing technology to win in the marketplace. Alta Beauty, Ferguson PLC, and Driven Brands are among the companies that she works with. Prior to her board roles, Kathy was a senior executive leading marketing and e-commerce efforts with world-class brands and businesses. She's worked with Walmart.com as chief marketing officer, with William Sonoma Pottery Barn as their VP, internet, and many others. Kathy, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mark. So great to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's been a long time that uh, since you and I have uh, certainly seen each other. Um, I know we do email every once in a while, but uh, I really appreciate you making the time to do this. You have such an amazing career, um, and I'm sure you're going to be uh, as insightful as I, I've known our conversations to be. And, and same to you, our 20-year friendship um, and uh, occasional gatherings, at, uh, industry gatherings and beyond has always been so valuable to me. Well, thank you. That's nice of you to say. And, you know, it's when I do these sessions with people that I know and I think back, all right, where did I meet her and how long ago was it? Um, it makes me certainly feel older and older as the, the days go by. But uh, I'm, I'm glad that we have a chance here. So uh, for the listeners, they know that the way I like to get these shows started, you know, I'm really a believer that the work that we have done in our career is, is oftentimes uh, determined by how we grow up. Um, I've interviewed a lot of entrepreneurs and, you know, you find that, geez, their parents were entrepreneurs. Tell us about, you know, kind of your upbringing and, and how maybe that played a role into what you do today. You know, I do appreciate the question. And like you, I believe that um, where you sit is where you stand and your upbringing, at least my upbringing has had an implicit and explicit mark on my person. You know, I'm a member of a large extended Irish family. My paternal grandparents, paternal great-grandparents emigrated from Ireland. So I had young parents. They had five kids before the age of 28, four girls and a boy. And we were punching up to middle class when I was growing up. And then the family moved to the western suburbs of Chicago in, in my teen years. So my family upbringing was scrappy, hardworking. Family really anchored and valued the truth. Many of my relatives are in the trades, police officers, and firefighters. I had very encouraging parents who were messaging constantly that you can do anything you want if you work hard. 
they were very focused on education. And in addition for me, very encouraging of my interest in sports. I went to Northern Illinois University in DeKalb, Illinois and got a great finance education. And I was also introduced at NIU to my love of statistics and art history. That's uh, that's an interesting uh, upbringing and, and definitely scrappy. I like that word, scrappy. You, you seem to be uh, pretty scrappy throughout your career. So let's let's talk. Jump right into the the career part. So you know, at post college, you work for a brand that everybody knows, Lands End. Uh, in those days, it was a I assume catalog only business. Uh, maybe they had some stores, but uh, catalog only. An outlet store too, but primarily catalog. So how did you come about uh, that job? So um, after graduation, as we used to search for jobs in those days, 30 years ago, I saw an ad in the Chicago Tribune job section for Land's End. And the job was a marketing coordinator. And as a finance major, I was intrigued that the ad called for a background in math or finance. And for a marketing role, I had assumed a creative or advertising background would be important. So I I was intrigued um, and I applied and I did get the job. And it was amazing because I didn't have a formulated or considered career plan. And I'm so grateful that Lanza was my first job. It was an exceptional experience that became the first step in what was to become my career. At first, I thought it was a job, uh, but it became a career. I learned so much, most of which I use today. And Mark, I don't know if you would agree, but a lot of those fundamentals that we learned back in the day in the catalog business uh, still apply. They're on steroids, there's more data, there's more computer processing power, but those fundamentals still apply. Not only did I learn a lot about statistical modeling for circulation in large databases, um, but I also learned about merchandising, call centers, customer service, distribution and fulfillment, and technology. So with Landstand, my first big learning is one of my first of the three key takeaways that you ask folks to share in the marketing playbook. And that is that Landstand corporate culture is definitely a core lever in enterprise value creation. So Landstand had the eight principles of doing business, still does today. And they lived by those eight principles. They were articulated, they were posted, they were talked about constantly, and they drove and influenced the business decisions. They were differentiating and they were value creating. And I'll give you a quick example. So L.L. Bean was our chief reference competitor in those days. They decided to outsource their call center. Um, And they were in Maine and we were in Dodgeville, Wisconsin. And in those days, it was really hard to have a lot of folks to staff your call center when you were a growing business. They decided to outsource. Lens End did not. And it was influenced and decided based on the fifth principle of doing business, to have deep knowledge of our products, be friendly and helpful. And management thought there's no way we could create that through an outsource solution. So again, this corporate culture of eight principles of doing business was a real driver. And so uh, in my career, I I consistently believe that an executive should spend part of their time really articulating, evolving, 
or in some cases, reimagining the corporate culture as a source of competitive advantage. So you were living in the in the Midwest at that time. You got all these, you know, great foundational elements of your career. And you're right, they're on steroids today for sure. Um, and you know, it's, I, I've told this story, um, you know, before I, in, in 2000, I worked at Brooks Brothers. And, you know, in those days, it was kind of my first experience with um, the web. And I would have these kids, literally kids, come to me from Yahoo and try to explain to me what Yahoo search was all about and how they were going to be able to, you know, see how many clicks people had. And there was this thing called conversion rate. And, you know, I just sat there and kind of laughed at them and said, you know, look, I don't know everything about you know, a lot of things, but I certainly understand what conversion rate is from my years of, of catalog experience. So uh, I know that. So you, you pick yourself up, uh, you move out of uh, Dodgeville, and you get to the West Coast. And what brought you out there? So that's a, a great question, Mark. So I would have been at Land's End probably for a little bit longer. The marketing and merchandising offices were in Chicago. Core operation was in Dodgeville, Wisconsin. Um, the company, again, as part of the corporate culture, decided to consolidate on the Dodgeville campus um, in Dodgeville, Wisconsin. And there was a strong business case to do that. But as a 28-year-old woman, and I didn't see any female executives in the ranks at Land's End in Dodgeville, Wisconsin, I, I decided not to move. In addition, I didn't see any lesbians or uh, as much diversity in the Dodgeville area from a, a living or working standpoint. And, and that was important to me. So, you know, I became an, a Land's End alum. And even in 1991, diversity did matter in employee retention. If you don't see uh, what you want to become, it's hard to stay. Uh, so I, I became an Alliance and alumni. I went to graduate school at Thunderbird, the American Graduate School in International Management in Phoenix to learn Chinese and Asian business. And recruiters from Land's End kept up with all the circulation talent that decided not to stay with the company in the move. And I got a call for a startup in San Francisco named Storybook Heirlooms. It was a catalog of mother-daughter apparel coordinates, like fancy dresses for special occasions, worship services, holidays, weddings, etc. And at first blush, I did not think that this was a winning business. But I decided I'll do a little due diligence in market research because the company's in San Francisco. And at the very least, I would have loved to have had an interview in San Francisco. So I called my sister who had children to ask her opinion, clearly not quant research, but a low qual research. Uh, she was ecstatic. She talked a lot about how it was great product, but it wasn't readily available in stores. So she could never find this kind of product. And when I thought more about it, it made total sense because here's a special assortment that probably didn't turn well from an inventory perspective in stores. Uh, you can't go deep and wide in an inventory that doesn't turn. So it was a perfect catalog because you could hold all your inventory in one distribution facility and you wouldn't be bound geographically by your, your customer and prospecting. So I took a different look at it and it turns out it was a very winning business. So I said yes and I joined the company and I moved to San Francisco. And again, it was an incredible learning environment. I learned so much about marketing, messaging, circulation and demand generation activities that were aligned with a differentiated merchandising positioning. So it was a different type of role and activity 
than Land's End, I'm much more tied to the merchandising strategy. So I learned a ton. So this was my playbook lesson number two, and that is there are channel specific merchandising strategies and they, they became very clear to me at Storybook Heirloom. So fast forward 20 years later, came in real handy when I was the CMO at walmart.com. And Mark, you will appreciate this because you were deep in this merchandise category in your career. So think about a situation whereby you're building an omni-channel offering, but you are sensitive to cannibalization concerns in a retail store that a catalog or online would cannibalize. So when we were building the site to store offering at Walmart, the order online pickup and store, we chose categories to go deep in that had a channel specific advantage and bedding and sheeting is one of those categories. So consider this merchandising a skew intensive category in a store on shelves is very difficult or allocating precious square footage in a store to visually merchandise a bed. But online, you could merchandise quite easily and have an offering that's very robust in SKUs that wouldn't break, right? No broken SKU sets. Um, so a very solid merchandising strategy for a specific channel. So my learnings from Storybook Heirlooms were quite rich and continued on to this day. And as Storybook Heirlooms was about to sell, I left the business and the business was sold to Fulcrum Direct, which is a name some people might remember. And they had challenges running it because it was a very specific merchandising uh, concept. And the business was then purchased out of bankruptcy by Delia's years later. Right. From there, you have a series of really great brands. You spend time at iMagnet and Jim Bree and, and Williams-Sonoma, uh, which is where I, I think that uh, we ultimately first met. I was at the company store at the time. You know, Many of these businesses were omni-channel. You're involved with omni-channel businesses today. Just kind of you know, explain a little bit from your perspective you know, how omni-channel, whatever that term is, multi-channel, omni-channel, how that's evolved from your days let's say at Williams-Sonoma to today where you're you know, heavily involved at Alta? Sure. No, that's a great question. I mean, it has evolved in some ways and it's stayed the same in other ways. So how it has evolved is it's become more of an imperative, right? So back in those days, Mark, when, when we first started our friendship, there wasn't a widespread adoption that the customer really wanted to shop in multiple channels. The retail channel was key. Um, and, you know, there were some people that shopped catalogs, some people shopped online, but not many. Now it's very well understood. Customers have adopted it. You know, the adage of allowing the customer to buy how and where he or she wants has been realized. I'd say 20 years ago, it wasn't yet realized. So that's the fundamental change. In terms of the tools and techniques and strategies, a lot of them, as I shared before, I think are fundamentally and foundationally substantially similar. There's more data, there's more experiential elements, there's more channels, there's more demand gen and traffic generating elements. But fundamentally, omni-channel, substantially similar. 
we talk about the fact that there's, you know, of the people that listen to the show, there's a lot of uh, folks that are earlier in their career, you know, hence, you know, wanting to give them some takeaways uh, to take back to their business or personal lives. One of the things that, you know, people ask me, especially the younger people in their career is, how do you know it's time to move on from a job? You know, you've been lucky, you've, you've had, you know, a number of different experiences in your career. What is it about when it's time to make the change that kind of resonates in, in your mind? I think a couple things. Um, one is if the give get equation, if your ability to contribute and your ability to learn is not keeping pace, that's the time to think about opportunity exploration, either within the company or outside of the company. And again, it's the give get, making sure that one can contribute and has the environment conducive to contributing as, as well as learning. I'd say that's one thing. I'd say second, if one has made a material impact, and by material, I mean it's, it's measured, it's important to the business, and the advancement is, is not in view, that's also an opportunity to consider um, looking. If one wants to look for more money or something like that, I don't know that that's as interesting a reason to start a, a job transfer because one um, might not have made an impact, um, one might not have a, a career arc to talk about um, after making several moves. So I think those are my primary, I'd say, is a fundamental underlier though. I think one has to move to something not away from something. So making sure that if you are going to consider a job change, you're clear in your mind of what you want to move to, not just, I don't like what I'm doing, I want to leave. So moving to versus moving from something. So what was it that you were moving to when you decided to go to Walmart? <laughs> you know, it's the largest business that I would have the opportunity to work for. It was global and I didn't have that in my career portfolio. In addition, the substance of the opportunity, here is a large, very successful global retailer who is seeking to build an online business inside. Um, and that challenge was very interesting to me as I had worked in, you know, step-tail businesses, if you will, inside of other retailers, catalog businesses, and started the online business at Williams-Sonoma and understood some of the challenges with growing net new businesses inside of big successful companies. So that was interesting as well. And I would say last, you know, what happens in Walmart happens in the world. You know, Walmart at that time was the second largest employer only to the U.S. military. So the number of associates, um, the policies impacted clearly a, a huge population. You know, 110 million people walking into the store every week. So if it happened in Walmart, it happened in the world. And I wanted to be part of that. While you were there and, and helping to grow this, you know, uh, online business, I, I'm sure there was lots of uh, conversation around Amazon. Uh, so was, was one of the main objectives is how to create a, a business that was going to be able to compete with Amazon long-term? You know, great question. Um, 
I wish I could say yes, but at that time, no. So, you know, there was an inside game and an outside game as it related to my role as Walmart.com. The inside game was to compete as effectively as I could with our reference competitors. And at Walmart.com, you know, Amazon was the bullseye as our reference competitor. The outside game was engaging Walmart Inc. to see Amazon as a competitor. And again, remember this was what, 15 years ago. And there wasn't as much alignment in Walmart Inc. that Amazon was a reference competitor or a deep threat um, long term. So again, a big learning for me in this career trajectory is, is to look at enterprise effort versus business unit effort as it relates to competitive strategy. So no, at that time, Mark, Amazon was not seen as a threat by big Walmart. It's interesting, you know, from, you know, the way it, it's played out and, you know, you sit back and say, geez, how was that not the case? But, you know, look, we, we, uh, we all learn and, and, and evolve our thinking because you had all this, you know, time at, at, uh, Walmart and you're thinking about how to do all the things you just mentioned. You know, one of the things I ask, you know, guests periodically is about this thing called the shiny object syndrome. Mm. You know, you get so many people calling you and it, it seems like now it's even more aggressive than it's been in the past. There's so many new ideas. There's so much new technology. How did you think about, you know, whether to take a call, not take a call, engage with new technology or not, you know, because you just can't do everything, right? Yeah, no, that is a million dollar question um, because we, we all face those um, every day. I would say first and foremost, uh, to have clarity on the technology model in your company. So are you a first mover or a fast follower um, as it relates to technology? And I've only worked for fast followers. I've never worked for first movers. So my experience is, is only in that realm. After you're clear on the fact that you're a fast follower, then there were two questions that, that had to be answered. One is, what was the business case? And was there a hurdle rate IRR on it? Um, even if it was a qualitative business case, because in the case of newer technologies, uh, there's not a lot of uh, data to form the business case. And second, and most importantly, what are the conditions for which you would adopt? that new technology. And so I can give an example if it's helpful. So at Walmart, reviews and ratings was something that Amazon was doing exceptionally well. Again, remember this is 15 years ago. And then other companies like Overstock and eBay also had reviews and ratings. And, and there were uh, a couple of providers in the marketplace um, that offered SaaS solutions. And so I, I got those calls, and the first thing was, is there a customer interest? And yes, there was. Was there a business case? Yes, there was. Under what conditions would we implement? And we had to get clear about that. One was moderation. So of the reviews that were written and, and um, submitted, was there a process to make sure that the reviews and ratings were about the product? not the brand or the store experience at the time, and had no offensive language and were actually from purchasers. So we had to confirm that. Second, we had to have a quick action on customer-raised issues. So could we delist the item quickly off the website if it was a defective product? Could we fix the issue quickly if, for example, there was breakage because there was poor packaging? 
So as soon as we took the time to build these capabilities, we, we went ahead and launched. But, you know, that was, at that time, more bright and shiny. And a, a lot of companies were adopting it, but we weren't a first-to-market. We were a fast follower, and, and we put in place uh, those types of um, elements to make sure we were making the right decision. Do you have a direct-to-consumer business? I enjoy connecting with guests on this podcast because it reminds me what I love to do, strategic and tactical consulting for businesses like yours. If you'd like to speak with me about your business and see how you can add a fresh set of eyes to your team, contact me at mark at detailsinteractive.com. Now let's get back to the marketing playbook. Uh, So your career has evolved from being on the brand side, being an operator, and, you know, now you've, I don't know, I was going to use the word ascended, but maybe, maybe that's the wrong word. Uh, you've now ascended to a uh, board roles, uh, which is you know, something that's been really interesting to me in my career. I've never had the opportunity to sit on a boards quite like the ones that you're involved in. Uh, but uh, first and foremost, maybe remind the, the, uh, the listeners which boards you sit on today. Sure. So currently I'm on Ulta Beauty, um, which is a omni-channel retailer of all things beauty all in one place, about a 20 billion market cap on the NASDAQ. Um, Ferguson PLC, which is listed on the London Stock Exchange, it's probably the largest company that few people have heard of. It's uh, a FTSE 50 larger than uh, Ulta, about 25 billion market cap. And then Driven Brands, which is the recent IPO company uh, listed on the NASDAQ uh, that is a franchise model in the um, automated automotive uh, supplies and services space. How did you come by these roles? Um, you know, did you seek them out? Were recruiters uh, finding you? Relationships? How, how does one go about uh, finding board roles? Yeah, no, great question. So typically board roles are seeking um, ex- uh, currently sitting or recently retired CEOs or CFOs. Um, neither of that. I'm a somewhat retired um, CMO. And about a third of the roles are through relationships. So somebody on the board says, hey, I know somebody. And two thirds are a recruiter. So about the time 2010, um, the digital director started to emerge. So, you know, Sheryl Sandberg from Facebook went on Starbucks boards and um, in Disney board. And, and so there was an interest in the boardroom to have someone around the table that had kind of the language and the agency around direct businesses, digital topics, things of that nature. Um, so the specs started to um, broaden to include folks that had marketing, e-commerce, digital behind them. So I was approached by a um, recruiter, Mary Saxon, who was at Hydrogen Struggle at the time. She headed up the retail business and there's a board practice in all the big recruiting companies. And she partnered with the the board um, recruiter suggesting my candidacy and and I'm forever grateful to Mary. And, and that's how I got on my first board, Ulta. And once you're on a board, uh, the the calls uh, come easier, um, and people are looking for folks that have board experience. So that that's how I started. All right, boards beget bo- more boards. Indeed. Yeah, and so what does the role of a board member look like? Board members represent the shareholder and are responsible for long five year plus shareholder value growth. Um, so technically, 
a board member has two duties. It's a duty of care, which the company has the strategy, the culture, and the capabilities to increase shareholder value. And the second is duty of loyalty, which means that you're acting in the best interest of the shareholders. Oversight and governance role, it is not an operating role. The CEO and the executive team operate the company and uh, board members uh, should not dip down into operating roles. Uh, what's really interesting is the only decision rights <laughs> that a board has is to hire and fire a CEO. And generally, there are three types of board roles. So that, that board role could be a working, a coaching, or an oversight role. Sometimes boards are working boards um, where at the invitation of the CEO, the CEO says, you know, I need some help with X and Y. Would you mind partnering with somebody on my team and actually producing a deliverable and analysis, a point of view, a perspective? That's a working board. A coach, coaching board is where the CEO says, hey, you know, I'd love you to partner with somebody on my team or myself and be a sounding board around some topics and processing. And then there's oversight boards, which is pure oversight and governance. Um, you prepare well uh, for a board meeting, you come to a board meeting and you engage fully. And you're available from, for the CEO to give you a jingle if there's some need, but uh, um, it's, it's a more of an oversight role. Those tend to be your larger Fortune 500 boards. And over the last 18 months sitting on, on boards, you know, obviously we're uh, sitting here, you know, having still in a, in a pandemic, how did your, you as a, as a board member help to counsel the CEO? How did other board members, you know, rally behind the CEO? You know, what kind of, was it a different kind of experience than, you know, the normal operating board work that you were doing? You know, it was in, in, in a lot of ways, um, as, as one could imagine. Boards had to be more frequently convened um, because there were a lot of topics, a lot of updates required in terms of kind of the status of the business, the status of the people, any kind of change in direction. I mean, when you have to close your store fleet, um, as many retailers needed to do last May, June, July, you know, there's cash implications, there's policy implications, uh, all kinds of implications. So CEO would tap various board members for advice and counsel to, to process as there was clearly a lot of uncertainty and, and a lot of uh, uh, situations that needed to be managed. But I would say the, the main differences were frequency of engagement, in some cases, there were weekly board meetings um, versus quarterly board meetings. Content, very near term, right? Typically, board meetings are uh, long-term in nature or strategic in nature or top of the trees in nature. This was down at the nitty-gritty level. Quite a difference from pre-pandemic and hopefully post-pandemic levels. You know, you talk about the fact that, you know, um, you know, you're a CMO, you know, from your experiences, you're a marketer from experiences. How do you, as part of a board member role, you know, how do you help these businesses storytell? You know, I've, I've, you know, had this conversation with, you know, so many guests is that, you know, marketing to some degree is just more difficult today because there are so many different tactics. There's so many different channels. Their measurement is more complicated. So when you're advising either in the board roles that you have or advising other companies, how do you help them with the storytelling and figuring out where best to market and how to interpret the results that they're seeing? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Cause as you well know, um, 
the marketing model and the capabilities of a CMO and the complexity of the go-to-market is different. So I would say, you know, kind of three key principles. One is making sure uh, that the board or, you know, myself um, um, are active in supporting the CHRO and the CEO and having the right marketer. So the right marketer spec, the, the right team, the right capabilities. So starting at that level, um, what are the marketing capabilities and, and what's the marketing team and who is the marketing leader? And, and that's not a one and done conversation. That's an ongoing conversation. Typically team is talked about in detail once a year and individuals um, can be talked about um, by the CEO um, over time. So being supportive and inquisitive uh, about that is the starting point. And then I would say um, really asking and listening to the various presentations at, at board meetings um, around the go-to-market, the competitive differentiation, the demand gen, uh, sometimes the conversion. Um, I would say the health and strength of the customer franchise, those types of questions. And asking a lot of questions about the efficacy of the brand story, the marketing story, the messaging. It's a lot of questions uh, and, and great board members ask great questions to help hone the activities of the marketing leader. And again, board members don't operate board members oversee and govern. So it's really about asking questions and offering observations uh, to help the executives and, and particularly the marketing uh, executive perform better. And, and before we wrap up, I want to come back to technology for a second. You know, we kind of hit that conversation about the shiny object syndrome, but because you're in the know from a, a digital perspective, and I know you're well-read, what are the, the kinds of technology that you're really following right now and thinking about, perhaps as an advisor or a board member, thinking about those businesses? You, know, you just talked about asking questions and observing. So what are you observing in technology? That's a big question as well. I'd say I'm particularly intrigued by the, you know, by the adoption and the development of 5G and the impact 5G is going to have on all things digital. I mean, what's interesting to me is I listen to some of the early kind of product introductions that are coming to market. A lot of things are coming to market with fuller feature sets in 2023 on the back of 5G. Um, including kind of bigger and better and wider adopting AI, AR, VR, blockchain, IoT, kind of the connectivity and the immersive qualities of these technologies that fundamentally need wide adoption of 5G. So, you know, I look a lot at the, the announcements um, at Apple, Microsoft, you know, Amazon, Alibaba, Tencent, Facebook, to see what their messaging is going to be coming down uh, the pike. But that's one bucket I'm really intrigued by is the adoption rate of 5G. I think the implication for retail for that is is really a significantly increased digital experience, very immersive, very connected. I'd say longer term, it's very, very early days, but I'm spending a lot of time learning and engaging in the metaverse. I am not a gamer. There's no gamers in my home, but I'm intrigued by the immersive connective experience, the economies, the merchandising of like a Roblox and an Epic game. So again, it's very early days, but that's also interesting to me from a technology standpoint. Good ones. Uh, good ideas.
Uh, well, we get down to the end of our show and, and in keeping with the theme of the marketing playbook, that's the football analogy. I do this two minute drill at the end of the show, seven questions, uh, one or two word answers from the guest. Are you ready, Kathy? I'm ready, Mark. All right. A brand that you admire or that inspires you? You know, I have to say Ulta because their whole mission is the beauty that lies within all of us and lives in the brand every day. It's really a great inspirational brand. Okay. Your favorite app on your phone? Audible. Okay. Last website other than Amazon that you shopped from? Adidas, Adidas. Um, they are great at Instagram marketing and single product merchandising, and they got me on their pride collection. So I bought uh, quite a few things from them. Something that you're not good at, but you wish that you were. You know, I wish I were good at running. I'm an avid walker, <laughs> but runners seem to be just healthier and fitter in mind, body, and spirit. So I wish I was great at running. So you're not going to take those uh, Adidas pride collection uh, sneakers and start running? <laughs> they are good walking shoes. All right. The uh, charitable organization that you're most passionate about? Many LGBTQ plus organizations and precedent-setting legal organizations such as the ACLU. And if you had one superpower, what would it be? You know, I'd love to be able to operate effectively on very little sleep. Unfortunately, I can't. I need my full eight hours. Oh, it's a good thing you're not in my body because I get eight hours over two nights. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Other than family, what's your most prized possession? Yeah, I'd have to say my health. As I age, that's so important for me and my family. Well, that's good. And uh, I hope that I uh, usually open with this. Unfortunately, I've been having to open with it almost the entire time I've been doing my podcast is, you know, we are in a pandemic and we are sitting here in the middle of September of 2021. I hope that you and your family uh, are, are doing well. Thank you so much for uh, doing the show with me. Great insights. Uh, you really have had an amazing career. And, and most importantly, I'm, I'm glad that uh, we're still in touch and we're still friends. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm grateful for my career and really grateful for our friendship. Thank you, Mark. That's it. Today's game ball goes to Kathy Halligan for coming on the Marketing Playbook. To me, today's three game-winning marketing plays were as follows. Number one, we heard Kathy speak about corporate culture at Land's End. As a company leader, you establish the culture by your words and your actions. Determine what you're building towards. Diversity, inclusion, well-being, and then support that culture with conversation and activities to support your goals. Number two, when is it time to leave your current role? This is a question that's often asked of me, especially by people earlier in their career. Kathy offered good advice here. You have to move to something, not away from something. It's time to move on when you feel like you can no longer learn and contribute to your career growth in your present role. And number three, first mover or fast follower. Are you part of an organization that's always on the cutting edge, or are you waiting for others to try the new things and then you follow on? You can be successful with either approach, but it's helpful if the entire organization understands which you want to be. To be the first mover, you need to have the stomach for failure and the capital to invest, but the upside of successful execution could propel your business. Thank you, Playbook Marketers, for listening to another episode. If you want to check out more pages of the Marketing Playbook, make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast spot and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us at Twitter at Details Interact and learn more at detailsinteractive.com. Until next time, 
The devil is in the details. 